Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest uh, in the distinguished series of lectures in honour of Pat Gillen, who uh, is here, along with Daniel's wife, um, who was uh, at the school and, of course, then was chairman of Standard Chartered and Standard Chartered endowed both the chair, which John Seidel owns, and uh, a series of um, only temporarily edited, actually. And a lecture series um, where the aim is to bring people from around the world to talk about issues in the areas in which Standard Chartered is active. But that actually gives us quite a lot of scope when we've had lectures on North Korea, we've had lectures before on China and on India, uh, and this evening we are going back to China, as you can see, bulls and bears in the China shop, and particularly looking at the way in which the financial crisis is impacting on Chinese manufacturing. And to deliver this year's lecture, we have Professor Andy Bernard from the Tuck School of Business. Before then, he was at Yale and at MIT and has his PhD, I'm pleased to say, from one of my alma maters at Stanford. Uh, he's also an associate of our uh, Center for Economic Performance and has been uh, for some time, so he's not a stranger to the US, <coughs> but we've been delighted that the Gillum series has allowed us to bring him over here, especially uh, to talk to us this evening. This is his area, his principal area of work, Chinese manufacturing. He's worked on issues on outsourcing, etc. in the past. Uh, but tonight we're going to hear something very up to date about the way in which this crisis is affecting manufacturing in China. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back at LSE, and I was mentioning earlier that. Uh, I have uh, connections both to professionally, because I uh, know quite a few members of the economics department, some of whom have uh, shown up tonight, and personally because uh, John Seidel, who invited me, and I went to boarding school together, um, and he has managed to round up a few people from there as well, so I, I can embarrass myself both professionally and personally uh, in one evening. Uh, I am, uh, my personal uh, history in terms of, of what I have studied I started as a macroeconomist and then very quickly, in a very short period of time, decided I didn't want to do that anymore uh, and started studying firms in trade, uh, which at the surface are not very linked. And tonight's lecture will be somewhat schizophrenic uh, following my career. I want to talk to you for a while about uh, what my perspective or a perspective on the crisis. And I'm going to avoid the use of the word financial because I believe that the roots of the crisis, or at least one set of the roots of the crisis, had nothing to do with the financial side although finance certainly exacerbated the problems, uh, broadened them, and deepened them. Uh, but I was also tasked, when first invited, to please not talk about the financial side. To quote the email which invited me, uh, people are already, quote, talking, talking, talking about that. It would be nice to hear something else. And so <laughs> my excuse when I don't talk about finance is that I was asked not to. So I have uh, two things that I'd like to cover in my prepared remarks, and then I am hopeful we'll have an engaging conversation afterwards. Uh, I want to talk about the, the crisis uh, from a productivity perspective. Uh, I have a very parochial view coming from the U.S., so I'll focus mostly on the U.S. Uh, it also happens to be the country where the productivity data is the most up-to-date. 
but I think it's actually emblematic of the sources of the underlying problem that we face. And then I want to pivot and talk about what kind of firms trade during a crisis and who survives crises uh, and what we can learn from them. And uh, it's somewhat uh, ideal that about a year and a half ago, uh, together with some of my co-authors, we started examining trade between the United States and the East Asian crisis countries during the East Asian financial crisis. And so the lessons that I want to talk about uh, that we're beginning to uncover come from that experience, which is not as obviously far-reaching as the current crisis, but have uh, lots of lessons to give us. So I'm going to focus on the trading side of that and talk about which firms survive and what trade survives that crisis, because I think that's important for us uh, going forward. Uh, so uh, to get you in the appropriate frame of mind, which may not be the most optimistic one, um, here is uh, a little bit of data that one can grab from a variety of sources. Here's world GDP uh, calculated uh, at nominal exchange rates, but that's really not uh, the interesting part. The interesting part, of course, is from 1985 and even before that, world GDP has grown uh, every single year, although the predictions, of course, for this year, the one we're, the calendar year we're in right now, are that for the first time in a couple of decades, we're going to have a contraction in world GDP. So we're going to have an event of unprecedented, unprecedented breadth and also severity. If you prefer, as most economists do, to think of it in terms of growth rates, here's the same data in growth rates. Even when the <coughs> major developed economies were at their worst uh, in the 91-93 period, and the US and other countries went into recession, and in the dot-com, so-called dot-com recession of 2001, world GDP uh, didn't turn negative. Uh, the forecast from the Economist Intelligence Unit uh, is the uh, little diamond down there at minus 3% for 2009 for the world. Um, if you want to find the most optimistic forecast from someone who isn't just talking out of their ear, um, you can go to the World Bank and get it at minus 1.7%. Uh, everything else is roughly in between. Maybe some of the economists in the audience uh, will give us more optimistic numbers. But it, it, no matter how we slice it, there's going to be uh, a quite a bit of shakeout. And one of the things that's of particular interest to the Asian economies is what kind of uh, linkages will survive this, and then where do they go uh, after the crisis eventually unwinds. Exports, of course, uh, are affected even more dramatically. <clears throat> you can see um, that there has been some form of break in trend in exports at the beginning part of the, this decade. That's going to correspond with uh, accelerated growth in most of the developed world uh, and an increased uh, disintegration of the supply chain around the world uh, during the most recent decade. Uh, that's now coming back down uh, quite a bit this year. Exports are expected to fall as much as 20% globally. Again, if you want to be more optimistic, turn to your World Bank uh, pages. They, they give a slightly less sobering uh, account of what will happen to exports. So that's the background in which we need to think about what's going to go on in Asia. <clears throat> Before we do that, let me give you a perspective on the crisis. Not the financial crisis, but the crisis. And it involves both global imbalances uh, and, more importantly, a productivity story. Uh, there are many in the room who've thought more deeply than I about the causes of global imbalances, and so I will give a fairly cursory uh, review of them. Uh, but I think it is important to couple uh, what we have seen in terms of imbalances, and when we talk about global imbalances, we're talking about current account deficits in the United States, uh, Eastern Europe, and elsewhere, and current account surpluses in China, East Asia, uh, and many of the other developed economies. Um, we need to couple that with what's uh, underlying in terms of productivity, and that's where I want to go for most of the talk today. 
So uh, two key questions. Why did the US import so much capital? And uh, why did the rest of the world uh, export so much capital to the United States? There are a lot of potential answers to this. Uh, if we think about the, uh, the importing of capital, uh, if we want to be a little bit crass about it, we can say, well, the United States went from having uh, a huge government surplus at the beginning of this decade uh, to enormous government deficits just a few years ago. That was a combination of fighting a couple of wars, which will always put some pressure on the fiscal side, uh, but also this, the big pot of money that was debated so heavily in the 2000 election in the United States uh, was up for grabs, and pretty much anyone who became president in the year 2000 was going to try to give most of that pot away, one way or another. They were either going to spend it away or reduce taxes to get rid of it. And the combination of those events has pushed the US uh, to, uh, to run large government deficits, if you want, want to be polemic about it, you can call them runaway. They're not runaway government deficits, but it was a huge change in the fiscal position. And then the other side, which gets a lot of uh, coverage today, are those terrible consumers in the United States, the ones who didn't know when to stop buying, uh, who bought uh, houses they couldn't afford, who bought uh, too many cars and too many uh, video game devices, uh, and weren't looking ahead and weren't saving. Uh, so I'm labeling them here the insatiable myopic consumers. And part of the story that I want to give you today is where they came from, uh, why they seemed to behave uh, in a way that was so detrimental to their long-run health, uh, and how they got themselves into trouble. And I think it combines uh, a personal sense of well-being and also a public sense that things had changed and changed in a way that was going to allow them uh, higher income going into the future. Uh, I'll talk a little bit less about why the rest of the world uh, exported so much capital to the United States, but roughly four categories that you could think about. One would be uh, commodity producers. Think of the Gulf states, uh, but there are others who weren't just exporting oil, who saw their prices rising dramatically starting in the beginning of 2004. And after uh, a couple of decades of price stagnation, had a large, large bulk of capital to try to dispose of. And there weren't that many domestic projects, so they were looking uh, to invest it globally, and some of it ended up coming back to the US. Uh, there's a group of uh, what I'll call the aging rich economies. Uh, Japan fits this uh, profile, but so do some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, countries that are wealthy, but whose populations are aging quite rapidly and have to save uh, to consume in their future. The rainy day savers. Um, I think of them as uh, many of the East Asian economies who were uh, determined not to repeat the last crisis, and so uh, uh, grew enormous war chests uh, of reserves, foreign currency reserves, in order to make sure that they did not have a crisis again. Of course, by doing that, um, they were preventing the last crisis from recurring, but crises never repeat in exactly the same form, so it hasn't exactly saved them this time around. And then uh, I euphemistically labeled the last one government intervention in capital markets. Um, the, the, the most obvious of those would be uh, China uh, attempting, for various reasons, uh, to both conduct monetary policy and fix its exchange rate, or uh, manage its exchange rate, uh, led to a, a large accumulation of reserves. So that, those are the capital suppliers. Um, we won't have, uh, at least in the formal part of the presentation, I won't talk too much about them. But I want to go back to start with our, I'm going to take you through a little bit of history. 1993, um, and for those of you who are not economists in the audience, uh, the rough way to think about uh, t 
total GDP in, in the context that I'm interested in is that total GDP in a country is a product of a set of inputs, uh, either labor or more broadly construed labor and capital, and then the productivity of those inputs. Uh, so how much you can get out from that given basket of inputs. And it's well known and uh, not controversial among various factions of macroeconomists that the higher your productivity growth rate, uh, the easier things will be in terms of your macroeconomic policy. And that for an advanced economy such as the United States, and I will be focused perfectly on the United States for a while, uh, that it's hard to get labor and capital inputs to be growing at a rapid rate for long periods of time. Uh, those, you know, we, we just don't have that much uh, underutilized labor in normal times. Today uh, might be a different, different story for, uh, for at least a little while. So what we have in the 1990s uh, are growth rates that were by recent historical standards quite high, between three and, and just over 5% per year uh, for GDP. Uh, growth rates, sustained growth rates that the United States had not seen in the previous two plus decades. Uh, there's a recession in 2001 uh, as the uh, dot-com bubble bursts. And, and then uh, you can see a slight recovery. I've chosen my cutoff here quite carefully. Uh, but the, the dominant feature of the late 1990s was the start of a discussion about whether these growth rates were permanent and whether the underlying productivity growth was also permanently higher than it had been. So if we take a look at productivity growth, uh, and I'll show you two different measures which tell roughly the same story. This is US labor productivity growth during the same period. So this even carries through the recession. And with the exception of a few low productivity years in the beginning, again, we have a story of high and unusually high labor productivity growth in the midst of an economic expansion. Not just at the beginning. In fact, the beginning of the expansion was characterized by relatively low labor productivity growth. But as the dot-com and the, the computer and telecommunications technology start to be dispersed to more and more industries, can think of retailing and wholesaling, service sector industries, you start to get labor productivity growth in the United States, which is at levels that had not been seen in a generation or more, and thus were probably outside the memory of most of the people who are making uh, relevant decisions. And even as the US economy goes into recession, productivity growth for the first time in post-World War II history does not decline. It actually stays and, and rises in 2002. Up, uh, labor productivity is up over 4% which is an astounding number uh, for an economy as uh, advanced as the United States. Multi-factor productivity growth um, is also high. It's not quite as uh, high as labor productivity growth because a lot of the, the growth in the US was coming about from capital accumulation. But it, too, was about 3 quarters to 1% per year higher than the average for the previous 20 to 25 years. So, in this period, there was a sense that things were different. In fact, the policy debate in the United States goes from when will the productivity growth slow down to will it continue forever. Um, it gets interrupted by the recession, but that was a false interruption because that was really a recession caused by tightening by the Fed. It was going to be a temporary phenomenon. And the question underlying the economy was, was this productivity growth going to keep rolling along? So we emerged from the 2001 recession with low interest rates, low inflation, lots of fiscal stimulus, and the US booming. And this is particularly important in thinking about the source of the current crisis because we've had half a decade or more of very good performance. And now we start going again, uh, 
And, and once this occurs for a long enough period of time, you start to see people change their opinion about uh, how persistent growth like this can be. And I see it every year because in one of the first lectures in our, my MBA class, the first year MBAs, I asked them a question which fundamentally boils down to, do you believe that US growth will be 3 to 5% per year during your lifetime? And uh, for most of the current decade that I've been teaching, the vast preponderance of these optimistic MBAs raise their hands and say, absolutely, we believe it. Uh, right after the recession, none of them believed it because they couldn't get jobs. Um, this year, I didn't ask the question because I didn't want to scare them. Uh, but I knew what the answer would be. No one would have raised their hand. Um, but you know, get a year or two of growth back again, and then their hands will start popping up. But that's actually a relevant observation. Here's US output growth in the first part of the current decade. Right? It's coming out of the recession, not so great in 2002. And then it's back up above 3%. Uh, of 4% per year for four years. In the previous decade, high growth was due to high and rising productivity growth. In this generation, the question is, is that underpinning it? But of course, no one talks about productivity. It's not, if you're forming your opinion about what your income is going to be going forward, you don't think about your productivity. It's hard to measure. And none of the policy debate is about it. Uh, but it really matters for whether or not this kind of growth is sustainable. Well, what we see now is by the end of 2006, with that sort of annoying little exception of the recession, we've had a decade of US growth at greater than 3% per year, which is not something we had seen, at least in my lifetime. And people start to challenge what they, they think about what's going to happen going forward. And there are basically two options. If you're an individual or a firm or a policymaker in this environment, you can either believe that What's happened is a technological, once in a, in a century, technological revolution that's raised growth rates for a decade, because it takes a while for everyone to figure out how to use these complicated machines. Uh, and then things will come back down to where they've been before, which is much more sedate performance. Or you could believe in what I'll call the new economy. Right? It's not new anymore because it happened so long ago, which is <coughs> really based on the premise that we're in a completely different world. Uh, to uh, use the phrase of, of one of the professors in the audience, uh, the weightless economy, right? based on electrons. Danny Claude uh, coined that phrase slightly before 1996, I think, to talk about this. Um, and <clears throat> one could ask, is this new economy, right, which is really a technology-based economy, able to grow at rates that the old economy, which was much more pedantic and based on stuff, um, couldn't do? Well, if you choose A, um, you see high growth rates, you're still going to be cautious. Because it's as if you know that your personal income growth is not going to be robust, as robust going forward. Sure, you'll get a series of raises, but they won't be those big raises you've been getting recently. But you'll be a little more cautious. You'll buy a slightly smaller house, maybe not quite as nice a car, and maybe a few, uh, few fewer uh, you know, video games. If you believe, however, and a decade's worth of experience has led you to change your opinion, uh, that you will enjoy this high growth rate going into the indefinite future, there's no reason not to start consuming some of those gains now. Because your income's going to be up, your GDP, if you're a country, is going to be rising rapidly going forward, uh, and it's okay to bank a little bit of that now. And if you look at the US data, and look at the share of consumption in the United States, which had been very stable at about two-thirds of US GDP 
you start to see beginning just about 1996-97 as U.S. gross rates take off a steady rise up to about 70% of GDP, which isn't phenomenal in percentage point terms, but when you take an economy as large as the United States, it makes a big, big, big difference. And <clears throat> notice that it hadn't really come down much by 2006. The U.S. firms and U.S. consumers had really changed their opinion about what was going to happen going forward, that there was robust growth in the foreseeable future, and it was okay to be consuming at this high level. Unfortunately, both labor and multi-factor productivity were slow. The story wasn't one of high productivity growth going forward. The story was one of very high labor productivity growth in 2002, falling steadily, multi-factor productivity growth eventually following suit. And by 2006, those were back down in very boring, old, mundane growth rate levels, not in new economy levels. Um, this is, I think, one of the things that gets disregarded when you think about the fundamental sources of the crisis, that people and firms and policymakers had changed their perceptions about what was possible for an economy like the United States, both inside the US and outside the US, because the folks outside the US were supplying all the capital to undertake these miraculous uh, new investments that were being promised, and also funding the consumption. But unfortunately uh, for the US, the, the story was, and unfortunately for the US going forward, the story was that, that productivity growth was slowing, and that the reason that the GDP was growing was because really we were mobilizing workers after the recession. And so what we were seeing in the early part of this decade was not confirmation that the U.S. could grow rapidly forever, but in fact uh, just a typical recovery, albeit a, a delayed recovery from a recession where they mobilized labor. So in the rest of the world, um, the rest of the world was taking advantage of this. And one of the places you can see this uh, is if you look at uh, commodity exporters. We're all painfully aware of what happened to the price of oil and thus gasoline, both for, uh, in, in especially leading into uh, the middle of last summer. But it had been two decades since commodity prices generally had moved at all, uh, inflation adjusted. Uh, if commodity exporters, the Gulf states and others, were now flush with cash, they didn't have that many domestic opportunities to invest, and so they were looking to place their capital elsewhere. You can see this in uh, recently released numbers from the IMF which is a broad-based commodity price index. And I've brought it back as far as they've got data, which is 1992. And from 1992 to the end of 2003, nothing happens to commodity prices worldwide. They just don't budge once you adjust for overall inflation. And starting in 2004, they take off, just about the time when economies like the US are seeing declining productivity growth, and thus there's less capacity for the US to absorb these rising prices without overall inflation uh, picking up. <coughs> the goods producers also were riding the back of this growth, especially the growth in consumption, the trend up in the share of consumption. Uh, and this is where we start to pivot towards the, uh, as, as was promised, the desired uh, focus of the, the talk on Asia. Uh, goods producers uh, across Asia are seeing their export markets boom. They're booming year after year, and they too start to expect that that will continue forever and start to focus their investments even more than they had in the past on export-oriented activity, even though the domestic economies in many cases were growing much more rapidly than the US. So the global supply of capital is plentiful. Um, unfortunately, uh, it looks like 
the productivity story is winding down. Um, we have productivity drying up, and then input, input growth, which can't be sustained at a couple of percent per year in the U.S., also slowing down, and we get the big turnaround in the U.S. economy. Now, at this point, I have to put out a note of caution. I haven't really talked about the financial sector at all. And what I would like you to, to take away from this is that much of the slowdown in growth that was going to occur uh, was there anyway. The crisis, as it got propagated through the financial sector, that just made it broader and deeper uh, than it would have been uh, in any case. Uh, but output is now you know, negative in the US. Input growth is also negative. Productivity growth uh, has ticked up in the last year. And the real question for us going forward is, are we about to go back to this level, or are we going to stay down uh, at the low levels? And unfortunately, I don't have the answer, but I can tell you my belief is that we've played out the benefits of the technology and communications revolution, and we would be much more likely to see modest productivity growth for the next decade than the ex tremendously expansionary productivity growth we saw over the past decade. Um, why do we care? Well, if, ra if rapid productivity growth in the advanced developed economies does not resume, then there's no doubt that consumption growth will be lower and that the network of suppliers and manufacturers that has been created across Asia and particularly in China will have to find alternative markets for their goods. This is going to put tremendous price pressure on a number of areas if we haven't seen it already. The political response to that is going to tend to be very protectionist, and we've already seen an, a, a big rise in protectionist tendencies, both in the United States and around the world. And I want to come back to that at the end. Many people have said for other reasons that uh, China and others will have to grow their domestic markets to absorb this capacity. Uh, this is just another version of that argument, but one which is grounded in the productivity uh, of the United States and the potential for output growth in the United States uh, rather than uh, some need to change, let's say, the financial sector. At this point, I want to do my pivot from my macro self to my more micro self. And I want to talk about what I've been doing research on for the last uh, few years. And I want to want you to <coughs> realize that part of the reason that I think the productivity story is essential is because of the the players that are engaged in trade uh, between, let's say, the United States and Europe and Asia. Uh, and who's going to survive the current crisis uh, and where the growth will come from as we move out of it. So uh, there are two pieces. I'll briefly talk about financial exposure and then much more uh, focus on uh, manufacturing. For financial exposure, <coughs> it, it's difficult to get uh, well, maybe it's not difficult for the uh, standard charter folks in the room, but for me, um, it's difficult <coughs> to get detailed information on uh, ownership and distribution of assets in, in the financial markets in East Asia. Um, the data that I am able to collect, um, I've got the share of assets in the banking sector uh, that are controlled by foreign-owned banks, and by foreign-owned, I mean banks that are more than 50% uh, uh, held from outside the country. This is World Bank data from 2005. Um, it doesn't obviously have every country that you'd want to have data on. And um, Hong Kong's not on the list, but Hong Kong also doesn't report this. Um, sorry if you can't see the. It, it goes down towards zero, I promise you. <laughs> um, it doesn't spike back up secretly. 
Um, so South Korea and Indonesia actually have the, the highest share of uh, foreign-owned banks controlling assets in the banking sector. Um, but most Asian countries, for government uh, regulation reasons and others, have relatively low uh, foreign presence in the domestic banking sector. Uh, this is in contrast to other areas in the world. Um, when you take the same data, uh, and here we have the exact same East Asian numbers, and then I put together uh, the available numbers for Eastern Europe and for South America. Um, I've left Central America and Africa off the list here. Um, you can see that East Asia is on one extreme. Eastern Europe's exposure to the current crisis, as been well noted in much of the financial press and elsewhere, uh, comes heavily through the banking sector. The concern about uh, whether uh, largely European banks, Western European banks, um, are going to try to sh shore up their capital uh, on the backs of their Eastern European uh, subsidiaries and affiliates. Well, that's a relevant concern for Eastern Europe because the degree of foreign ownership in the banking sector is quite extreme. And to the extent that there is nationalist pressure from regulators to fix it at home first and not worry about foreign affiliates, uh, that's going to be something that Eastern Europe is going to have to worry about much so, more so than East Asia. And my experience, I'm, I've been dabbling, as everyone uh, seems to be, uh, in thinking about financial regulation recently with a group of, uh, of unaffiliated financial economists called the Squam Lake Working Group. Because um, there's a lake in New Hampshire, and we got everyone up there for a weekend. Uh, and <coughs> there is no doubt that there is a tendency towards more protectionism in the way domestic re-regulation is being written in the financial sector in the US, and I suspect elsewhere, uh, to try to get these multinational banks to focus at home. That will matter much more for Eastern Europe than it will for East Asia. South America is somewhere in between. There's US and, and particularly Spanish banks in South America, but South America is going to feel much more like East Asia, connected to the world through its manufacturing linkages rather than uh, the ownership of its financial markets. So what is the problem for East Asia in the current crisis? Remember, they went, you know, many of these countries went through problems in the late 1990s, and the response was to make sure that they had sufficient foreign exchange reserves to fight off any pressures on the currency and to really make sure that their domestic banking system uh, could survive one of these crises. Well, now it turns out that, of course, when all your world markets uh, collapse at the same time, that may be the least of your worries because now you actually have real demand drop uh, pretty much everywhere, and there's no place for you to be selling your goods. And that's, uh, that's the nature of the, the problems facing East Asia, and particularly China, who, of course, is not particularly exposed on the, uh, the financial sector side at all. If you look at manufacturing as a percent of GDP, uh, you find, again, East Asia is an outlier, and this time on the high side. Right? East Asian economies, with the exception of Belarus, um, and I don't know much about Belarus, so I won't vouch for those numbers, um, with the exception of Belarus, uh, East Asia has higher manufacturing as a share of GDP than pretty much any of the other countries in Eastern Europe and South America that I have up here. And I only have the same ones that were in the previous slide. So again, not everyone's represented. So if I've left your country out, I apologize. Um, but this is the, the, both the, the glory of the East Asian economies and the problem for them. Uh, that their linkages have been through, are through the manufacturing network side. Uh, and that that network is under incredible stress right now. So let's think about who trades uh, and what they do during a crisis. Uh, and, and now we're coming much closer to the area that I've been working on over the past year. 
Um, and I want to divide the world into two types of trades, arm's length trades uh, and intra-firm trades. Arm's length trades can take two types. Um, they are trades between uh, parties that have no cross-ownership relationship, or at least a small enough cross-ownership relationship uh, that it doesn't get observed by the authorities. So you can imagine um, a UK-owned, UK-operating <coughs> domestic firm uh, is purchasing uh, from a Chinese-owned, Chinese-operated firm, or a firm in an Asian country that has no linkages to it. Uh, that's one type of arm's length trade. Uh, you could also imagine a large multinational operating in, let's say, the UK that purchases from uh, a domestic firm in an Asian economy, um, or conversely, is selling to them. Um, those would be trades that would be taking place. There may be a long relationship between the firms in terms of trading, but there's no cross-ownership relationship. Um, the, the other type of, of trade is intra-firm. So think of your favorite big manufacturing multinational, and then think of a transaction that goes between uh, affiliates. They don't have to be wholly owned affiliates, but they just have to uh, pass a certain ownership threshold, which is actually fairly low. Those would qualify as intra-firm trades or related party trades. They're inside the multinational. So what I want to do is I want to ask, okay, at least if we can divide the world into these types of activities, do we see any difference in how they perform in a crisis? So what we do is we go to the U.S. data, um, and we're going to look at U.S. exports, for the most part, into Asian crisis countries during the late, uh, mid to late 1990s. Think of, this, think of it this way. The current crisis is much more complex because we have economies slowing down or collapsing around the world. But back then, you'd have U.S. producers trying to sell into those markets where there were both financial and economic collapses happening and facing the kinds of difficulties that the typical exporter will be facing today. And we want to ask ourselves, who survives that kind of crisis? Who thrives in it, if anyone? Um, and who does not do well? Because I think if we do that, we're going to learn a little bit about who's going to be performing well in the current crisis and there are also some lessons for what kinds of policies we might want to advocate going forward. So before we do that, let me just highlight how important multinationals are in total trade. This data might seem a little obsolete because the most recent year I have up here is 2000, but I can guarantee you that the data for 2007 looks just about the same. We just haven't got authority from the government to release it yet. So here's what we have. We have imports uh, in the first two uh, sets of bars and ex exports, U.S. exports in the, in the next two sets. Um, multinationals are there. And this is total U.S. imports. In 2000, 90% of U.S. imports had a multinational in the United States engaged in the transaction. Okay, Not very many multinationals in the United States, only about 3,000 of them out of 300,000 total firms. So we have a, a tiny fraction of firms controlling 90% of trade in terms of imports and more than 90% in terms of exports. And inside that trade, we can see on the import side into the US that related parties, that blue bar there is the intra-firm activity. That's within the multinational from an affiliate outside the US to an affiliate in, inside the US. Uh, on the export side, related parties are a little less important for the US, but there's still uh, a big chunk of trade. But multinationals themselves are engaged in a large, large majority of US trade. So one question is, is that uh, representative of other countries? So uh, recently, a couple of researchers, uh, one of whom uh, at Stanford, one at the, at the IMF, um, have put together data on China, on Chinese trade from 2005. 
It's not exactly the same, but it's pretty close for the purposes that we're interested in. Here are foreign firms as a share of the number of exporters and the number of importers in China. And you can see that both between joint ventures and wholly owned subsidiaries, foreign firms account for between 60 and 70 percent of the trading firms operating in China, trading outside of China. Domestic firms are broken into state-owned enterprises and purely private Chinese firms are vastly more important in numbers than they are in terms of value. And you can see that here. Even when you go to the value of trade, foreign firms control more than 70 percent of both imports and exports in and out of China. We don't know from this data how much of that is intra-firm trade or how much of that is sort of export platform trade. Apple is manufacturing, creating iPods conceptually in California, having them stitched together in China and then shipping them to third parties versus shipping them to Apple subsidiaries. But what we do know when we look at this is that multinationals, which are all those firms and some of the Chinese firms are certainly multinationals as well, Hire and others, that they control the preponderance of Chinese trade. And so this kind of artifact of trade, which is it's heavily in the hands of multinationals, is something that's widespread. It's true on both sides of the transaction, both on the Chinese side and the U.S. side. And if we looked at other East Asian economies, I suspect we'd see similar kinds of numbers. Folks in Europe have been starting to tabulate these numbers, and they look very much like the U.S. numbers that I showed a second ago. If we look at U.S. data on exports to the U.S. for the Asian economies I put up earlier, the average is 46 percent. Forty-six percent of U.S. imports are intra-firm. Most of the Asian economies are above that, with a couple of and one notable exception, which is China. China is substantially more arm's length in its trade with the U.S. than other East Asian economies and dramatically less intra-firm than the U.S. as a whole. So we have two sets of economies in East Asia, one of which has quite a bit of intra-firm trade. Those are multinationals who have affiliates on both sides of the trade. And then we have a couple of countries, China and Indonesia, where that's a lot less true. And I think that there's going to be a potential for a difference in the response to the current crisis between the countries where they have quite a bit more intra-firm trade and those where there's less intra-firm trade. And I'll explain why right now. So we want to know how multinationals are different from other firms and then how they behave in a crisis and whether they behave differently. So first, are they different? I call this the bigger, stronger, faster view of firms. If you tell me what attribute of a firm you really like, and let's make sure that we have reasonable ones, whether they're more productive, more profitable, larger, more skill-intensive, more R&D-intensive, less likely to fail, and the list can go on, multinational establishments tend to have more of that attribute than non-multinational establishments. It's true in the United States. It's true in Indonesia. It's true in China. It's true just about everywhere people have looked. You may not like multinationals for other reasons, but it's not because they've got attributes of firms which are bad. They tend to have the sort of Superman type of attributes. They also are going to perform very differently during a crisis. So if we go back to the Asian financial crisis and look at overall U.S. exports, 
Um, we've got six crisis countries here. Um, and I've, I'm sorry, this wasn't clear, but these years start in June, or July. So these are July to June years to try to capture the fact that the crisis really starts in July 97. It's a kind of a mid-year crisis. And you can see that uh, US exports were growing very, uh, in a very nice way to the Asian crisis countries. The crisis hits. And in two years' time, US exports fall by 20%. If you've been reading the Chinese export numbers, that number should sound roughly familiar because Chinese exports uh, have fallen about 20% uh, year on year since the onset of the current crisis. Uh, after the crisis starts to abate, uh, exports uh, continue to, to climb back up. But they're really, they only, over four years, only roughly get back to where they had been before the crisis uh, hit. It's very different for the rest of the world. If you look at US exports to the rest of the world, uh, they're not growing as rapidly before the crisis hits, but they continue, with the exception uh, of 1998, uh, to grow during this period. Uh, and they certainly are doing better than the exports to the crisis countries. So there's no doubt that the demand shock in those crisis countries uh, affected US exporters quite dramatically. So overall, exports fall uh, by about 20%. Let's split out those exports into uh, the types of firms that are, are trading. We have uh, the yellow line, which I had a second ago, is overall US exports. I don't know what shade this is. It's some kind of horrible aquamarine or something. This is Redmond, Washington, uh, forcing this on Microsoft colors. Um, uh, here are the multinationals. And you can see the crisis hits. And actually, for the first year, multinational trade by value doesn't even flinch. There's no fall at all. I mean, it's not rising quite as rapidly as it had before, but it doesn't fall. And it takes quite a while right, before the arm's length and non-related party trade, the non-multinational trade, catches up, back up with the multinational trade. And you can see the entire fall just about in output in this two-year period in terms of exports to these Asian crisis countries is coming about because of firms that are not multinationals who are conducting arm's length transactions uh, with counterparties in East Asia. So who survives the crisis? Well, it looks, on the surface, like it's the multinationals who are continuing to uh, maintain their links to the Asian crisis economies. Um, and if we dig a little deeper, we're going to see more evidence of that. If we looked at the number of firms conducting these transactions, we'd see roughly the same story, not quite as, as accentuated. Uh, the arm's length, non-related party, non-multinational uh, firms are more likely to fall out of their trading transactions. Uh, and the multinationals are more likely to, to be trading throughout the period. Uh, if we look at the value per product per firm shipped, we actually see that rises uh, during the crisis uh, for the multinational firms. They tend not to ship quite as many products uh, as they had before, uh, but the amount that they're shipping of the stuff they do maintain uh, goes up. That's the opposite for the non-multinationals. All these numbers are statistically significant for those of you who are worried about your econometrics uh, here. Uh, we find that the, uh, the, the arm's length trade uh, is significantly lower. Uh, and when you compare it to what goes on with the non-crisis countries, these lines all lie on top of each other in the non-crisis countries. There's no systematic difference between the number of firms or the amount shipped in non-crisis countries between multinationals and non-multinationals. They tend to perform very similarly. OK, what about <coughs> the, the probability of surviving? of maintaining your contact with your trading partner. Um, this is a very uh, awkward graph, uh, but at the odds of not putting up uh, small numbers, 
what, what this tells us is um, even for, for all countries during this period, 96 to 99, uh, if you were doing transactions within your firm, that's this bar right here, uh, you were just over 20% more likely to survive um, <coughs> compared to a transaction was, which was between two unrelated parties, neither of whom were multinationals. If one of you was a multinational, um, you were about 17% uh, more likely to survive. This is the whole world. This isn't the crisis countries. Over on the left-hand side, you can see the relationships for the crisis countries. Uh, they're much stronger, significantly stronger. Uh, if you're a multinational, the probability that you survive compared to two arm's length uh, parties, neither of whom is a multinational, is uh, upward of 27%. Um, you can, this is, these are just the raw numbers. If you control for all the various factors that make multinationals bigger, faster, and stronger, at least the ones we have data for, uh, these numbers all go down. That's certainly part of the story, but they don't go away. There's something that we can't measure, which is in the linkages between multinationals and their trading partners, and is disproportionately stronger during crises than during normal times. Um, if you think about new trading relationships that start in the middle of a crisis, and boy, would we like to have a bunch of those right now, um, again, they tend to be um, either from a multinational in the US during the Asian financial crisis, um, or if you combine these two things, within a multinational. The sum of these two things represent multinational activity. Um, the non-multinational activity, uh, in terms of both the frequency of the new trading relationships and the value, uh, is much smaller. So the existing ones are more likely to continue, and you're more likely to see new relationships pop up with a multinational in one half of the trade. Um, this is uh, my apologist lecture for uh, why multinationals are wonderful, uh, and I expect to be compensated by multinationals around the world appropriately afterwards. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, the, the lesson from this is that there are, these firms are different, and they are different in ways which make them crucially important during times of stress and crisis. Trading links are more likely to survive, trade falls off less, uh, if it's being conducted by multinational firms, particularly if it's within a supply chain where the ownership uh, is, is uh, where there's cross ownership between the parties. They're more likely to maintain their trading relationships and they're more likely to start new trading relationships. These, these firms have set up their networks. They don't want to, there's value in the network. They don't want to destroy the relationships that are there. They don't want to undo what they've set up. They're willing in, case, in the case of the Asian financial crisis, to keep the relationship going, they actually keep the level of activity roughly where it was, in the expectation, presumably, that the, the countries will rebound at some point in the future and they'll be able to take advantage of it. Uh, it is, I think, really a, uh, an under-noticed fact of international trade life that multinationals perform a series of positive uh, things in the economy. And, and what I mean to say is that uh, if you go to Washington right now, uh, as much as the current administration is trying to avoid uh, taking a stab at uh, breaking down trade uh, and, and, and backtracking on trade agreements, um, they are willing uh, to take multinational firms to task for their activities, uh, their, their faults perceived or not. Because they're viewed as, as easy political targets. And this is not just true in the United States. I think it's true everywhere. Um, but of course, at this point in time, uh, these are the folks who are continuing uh, to engage in relationships around the world. And for the East Asian economies, 
these are going to be the firms that are going to keep, during this time of crisis, keep the economies rolling. We don't know yet, and because we just started this, why, what aspect is really driving these trade connections. Is it the fact that they have better access to finance, that they can get access to either working capital or trade credit that other firms can't? Is it the managerial talent that they have in place that they're able to secure both at home and abroad? And folks at the LSE have been ahead of the game showing that multinationals from different companies are able to implement both new managerial techniques and new human resource techniques differentially, depending on where the firms are headquartered. Are these just proxies for long-run contracts? If you and I are owned by, at least in part, by the same firm, we have a bunch of unwritten things that we don't need to price out and we don't need to negotiate over because of our ownership relationship. It could be one of these or it could be something we haven't yet looked at. But understanding the answer is going to help us to understand whether it needs to be multinationality that survives these crises or whether it's just some firm attribute that we haven't paid sufficient attention to. I want to take a couple minutes to wrap up to talk about why I think that it's particularly important to understand both the productivity story that I started with in terms of the macroeconomics and the microeconomics of who survives these trading crises. There is an enormous amount of attention, especially in the last couple of weeks, over the rise of protectionism. In particular, explicit and implicit trade barriers, barriers in particular to goods. I, as an international trade economist, am all for shedding light on protectionist actions and getting rid of them. And I am leery when I hear about political leaders from Russia to France to the U.S. and elsewhere talk about how important it is to actually manufacture cars in their locality. But I think that the focus on trade barriers for goods and trade barriers for services masks actually a far more pernicious set of trade barriers, and that is trade barriers that prevent cross-border investment. If you think about where a lot of the action has been in the past few years, it has been, in the U.S., it has been in the prevention of firms from, let's say, China making investments in the United States for national security or other reasons. The number of firms that then do not choose to even attempt that process because of the risk of being hauled before the court of public opinion as someone who is trying to steal the national assets means that the amount of cross-border flow is even lower than it normally would be. And it goes both ways. When the United States decides that it's not going to let a Chinese national oil company invest in its firms, then there's reciprocal action on the other side. And it's not just the U.S. and China. This is occurring around the world. We have the Europeans trying to make sure that the ownership of their energy assets stays in national hands. We've got all sorts of concerns about who owns pharmaceutical companies. These aren't trade restrictions per se. It's a growing bevy of international investment restrictions that may not even be explicit. It doesn't require a change in law in order to prevent these kinds of investments from occurring. Well, think back to who survives and who thrives in a crisis. And you have multinational firms trading with each other. In this crisis, we are suffering because of the lack of cross-border investment that occurred in the past decade. Any time that investment didn't occur, that's another weakening of trade relationships between the countries. And it's weakening of trade relationships, which is exactly what we don't want in the midst of a downturn that's as widespread and global as the one we have now. 
So while I applaud the focus on the return to an aggressive Doha round and getting rid of formal trade barriers on goods and services, I think the real action for those of us in the room and for those of us who are interested in, in the growth and the next epoch of, of economic prosperity is to focus on the movement of cross-border capital because cross-border capital brings with it all sorts of benefits that we don't yet know how to quantify and we don't know how to substitute for. We don't know how to create a firm that's, that acts just like a multinational but has its ownership uh, completely split, split apart. We've just uh, unfortunately ended a tremendous epoch of wealth creation. If you remember back to that first slide, that continuous growth in world GDP uh, is temporarily, and I'm an unmitigated optimist at the moment, is temporarily ceased. Uh, the pieces are in place through global linkages uh, to renew global growth and for uh, countries around the world and firms around the world to prosper from another round of global growth. The expectation that the U.S. will resume its status as the consumer of all things manufactured elsewhere is probably, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a bit misguided. And that's misguided because we, I don't think we expect to see the resurgence of 3% productivity growth in the U.S., which is at least part of what it would take to see that happen. The real question for us is, what are we going to do to make sure that the next crisis, and there will be one, uh, occurs in a world where the linkages have become more intertwined across the economies, where there's been more investment, where it's more of the firms that will continue to trade and to, uh, to deal with each other, and fewer of the firms that are likely to disappear in crisis. So I'll end there, and I'll be happy to take questions on the wide range of things. That hopefully. Thank you very much for an extremely wide-ranging speech, uh, which I'm sure has raised a lot of issues in people's minds. Let me, let me have a few minutes, let me throw in straight away to questions from the audience. Uh, yeah, you can give your name. I think the acoustics in this room are uh, pretty good, so that you can... Robert, you can sound sharp. Um, the Asia crisis was a highly asymmetric shock, uh, with Asia doing badly, and as you pointed out, the US on the whole did relatively well over that period. I just wonder what makes you think that experience will carry over to the current global, global crisis, which is really systemic and, and is hitting everyone. I don't think that the, the one is the mirror image of, of the other, but I do think if you want to approach it from the position of the Asian manufacturing sector, uh, the, 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 the domestic economies are for the most part uh, going to be affected by what happens in manufacturing. But they are not directly affected, at least for most of these economies, by uh, collapses of credit and, and other sort of problems. So I think from, from that perspective, what's happened to them is their, their demand has disappeared just with, as with in the, the Asia financial crisis, U.S. exporters to East Asia saw their uh, demand go away. So I think that there are plenty of lessons there about who's going to survive this crisis. I think the severity and breadth of it is obviously much greater than the current fairness. Uh, uh, a lightweight question for me. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Koala, the School of Economics. Um, I like this notion that you're trying to look at the previous crisis as a, as a laboratory But there's one large chunk of that that seems not to enter your analysis. In the 97-98 crisis, Asian currencies that were hit by the crisis fell by 50 to 75%. And they stayed low for years after. That means that for any firm from the US who was engaged in an arms length trade with Asian counterparties, their product had this price just go through the roof. 
differential story does not seem to enter your analysis. In the current crisis, if we think about the U.S. as taking the place of the East, going to Asian economy, paradoxically, the U.S. dollar has actually remained strong throughout all of this time. If anything, has actually risen. Now, there are reasons for thinking that have to do with financial markets, which we don't want to talk about here. But the, but the thing is, there's a sharp asymmetry, that even sharper than I think the previous uh, uh, intervention suggests. And that has to do with the relative price of currency. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I, I mean, one of the things, you know, if we had another six months, we'd have uh, much more to talk to you about, uh, because that's something that we're looking at quite closely. But I, I guess I, I would be a little hesitant to say that that completely differentiates the two, because it is the case that the East Asian economies, for many U.S. firms who are engaged in trade with them, exporting to them in 1997-1999, was not their dominant market. So the fall in demand for them as a firm was actually probably not as great. Um, so they faced terrible currency prospects right, uh, in, in, those, in those periods. Asian firms exporting to the U.S. are not facing that today, but the U.S. and also since Europe is going into recession as well, or in recession, the, the aggregate demand effect of the firms may actually be quite comparable. I agree, but I'm also suggesting that this might be a way to think about the difference between outside transactions and within multinational tech transactions. No, that's exactly right. In fact, you know, what, one of the primary areas of our research is to try to look at the differential pricing patterns of the arm's length and multinational firms during the crisis. And to be honest, the, we're at the phase right now where we have, we're more confused than, uh, than clear on this because we expected to see, because of the ability of the multinationals to get around the currency problem by using transfer pricing and other mechanisms, we expected to see far smaller price movements uh, measured in dollar terms for the multinationals. And we haven't actually seen that. Now, I, I say that with some degree of trepidation because this is, this is where the aggregates are probably not giving us a clear answer. We need to go down deep down into products and things like that. But, the, but there is, it is a very, that is a very different uh, story and that may explain part of what we see on the Asian crisis. But the, the, you know, we can look at some other demand shocks as well and we tend to get the, the same kind of story. Uh, John Sutton. Um, the um, really striking thing here is the degree to which the trade linkages involving the multinationals appear to be remarkably stable through the crisis, whereas the other ones are collapsing. Now, if that's so, um, it really begs the question, as you said yourself, of what the reason for this is, what the mechanism is. And I take your point that it's hard to pull it out of the statistics. But I think there's one thing that you really need to try to distinguish as being right or wrong, and that is that the kinds of transaction may be quite different between the multinationals and the others, in that the multinationals may be more heavily involved in trading intermediate goods, where I have found the right Chinese component supplier, I've brought down his price, I've pushed up his quality, I now have a good trading relationship, and this is how I make the gizmo, and I'm not going to break that. Whereas more of the non-multinationals may be involved in final goods trade, where a fall in consumer demand for this category of goods suddenly leads to a drop in the export relationship. And I think if you could pull apart that effect from the multinational ownership effect, uh, then it would be helpful. I, I completely agree. The, um, unfortunately, for those of us who get dirty with this kind of data, the, the idea of an intermediate is uh, clear when you see 
see it, but it's very hard to see in, in the data. So engines, uh, outboard motor engines for boats are both intermediates uh, and final goods, depending on who's doing the purchasing. Uh, we have, we're relying on folks who are spending enormous numbers of man hours trying to, to disentangle this. So far, we haven't seen a dramatically different pattern for intermediates and final goods. But there is more volume, uh, disproportionately more volume, in the intermediates for the multinationals. Um, but the behavior seems to be at least robust to those broad classifications. But we're, that's, you're right, that's exact. Understanding whether this is driven by the supply chain effect or uh, the assembly and delivery to, to the final retailer is, is crucially important. It, it may not matter quite as much for the current crisis, but it's certainly we want to know this going forward. Can I just ask you, uh, sorry, as I say, it's next, but can I, can I just, uh, on your productivity growth charts, have you, are you able to disentangle in relation specifically to exporters where the productivity growth was more rapid among the multinationals or the arms length? Um, no, the, the productivity data I showed you is data that's produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics and is uh, very much sausage. Uh, and I don't really want to go see how they make it. But um, <laughs> what, what I can tell you is that uh, you know, for, for quite a while now, I've been interested in this notion of whether engaging in the global economy makes you more productive somehow. Mm. Uh, and my research on that has said no. From the trading, uh, exporting side, and also from the multinational side, um, these firms are good before they enter these relationships. They don't seem to outperform in terms of productivity once they get in them. Now, they do grow faster. They get bigger faster. But they don't become more productive, use inputs more efficiently. I said the same. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to take up the question of the accumulation of reserves by Asian countries. You said in response to the 1997 financial crisis, the accumulated reserves. I mean, the biggest accumulation of dollar reserves taking place in China, which was not actually affected by 1997 crisis. The story of productivity, whichever way you look at the Chinese data, which seems to suggest that there has been a remarkable increase in Chinese productivity. If you look at the manufacturing sector, the labor force actually in manufacturing has been falling over the period in China. And But on the other hand, both the outputs and exports have been mm -hmm. rising. So there is another story apart from, you look at the US side because of the availability of statistics. Chinese statistics may not be as detailed, but the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of increasing productivity also on the Chinese side. Yeah, so I, I I have uh, no knowledge, direct or indirect, about the, the Chinese productivity story, but I, I think it's a, it may be a, a slight, uh, China was not one of the crisis countries, but that does not mean that China's accumulation of reserves was not influenced by the fact that many of its neighbors had crises, and that the response to make sure that you didn't have a, a currency crisis outside your own making or beyond your own control was certainly could have contributed to their accumulation of reserves. The desire to both manage domestic monetary policy and uh, manage the exchange rate in the face of uh, great demand for Chinese assets leads to a rise in, in reserves. The, the Chinese productivity story, I would be delighted if China has uh, far above average productivity growth. Because I think China, that's one of the things that China may need uh, for the next 20 or 30 years in order to grow quickly before it gets old. But I'm not sure that <coughs> the Chinese productivity story um, helps explain why its export share 
has been rising, why it hasn't been consuming those goods at home, which I think is part of the future question of how China will progress. That was a rambling answer. Oh, sorry. So I guess I was fascinated by this kind of investment creep angle, this kind of idea that we all focus on tariffs and things, but actually insidious might be controls on foreign investment. So if you look at the East Asian financial crisis, the current crisis, do you see, A, how do you measure this stuff? And do you see kind of an uptick when there's a crisis and suddenly we start to put more sort of buy American, or sorry, make American, buy American types of restrictions on multinationals? Well, there's certainly a tendency during U.S. recessions for U.S. protectionism to rise. And I guess the good news was in the previous two recessions, it started from low enough levels that it didn't end up mattering that much. I think that the story could be very different today. You have to remember the Asian crisis countries almost without exception had to swallow the IMF medicine, which largely prevented them from doing that, even if they wanted to. We're in a little bit of a different world today, and it was more about trading goods at that point than trading investment flows. I think that the, I mean, what I see is a tendency to try to help those at home, and that's both through trade and investment protection. I think it's a lot easier to prevent foreign investment because it doesn't require an absolute restriction. It just has to be that you're scared to start the process. It's a costly and long process. So I see that all over the place in the U.S. I mean, we talk to foreign firms about their desire to invest in the U.S., and they start to mention these strange acronyms like CFIUS and things like that, which are these government councils which advise Congress on whether it's an okay. So we're actually seeing in measurable terms in this current crisis some sort of uptick. Uptick in that, yeah. And it's also showing up in the financial regulations, the proposed financial regulations, that domestic capital should be treated favorably relative to foreign capital, which is a particular problem for countries in Eastern Europe. I mean, on that sort of connection, you have two dimensions of protectionism on your side, trade barriers and overseas investment restrictions. But it seems to me that there may be a third one, and I wonder what effect you thought it had, which is what people talk about as financial protectionism. In other words, you take our money as a bank from the state to support you, but we don't want you to see that lending that somewhere else. You know, we want conditions on increases in domestic lending, and also we want you to increase your capital. And typically what we're now seeing in order for people to increase their capital is they're selling off peripheral states. So, you know, Bank of America is selling off China Construction or whatever it might be. So there's a kind of deglobalization going on in the financial sector. How far do you think that will in itself affect the ability of people to invest cross-border? Because you might say that just the fact that Bank of America doesn't own a stake in the Chinese bank may not in itself be that significant, but the kind of pulling in of the horns of these international banks may well affect the ability to finance investment overseas. Yeah, it's probably a particularly dangerous time to say that financial globalization is a good thing. But I am deeply worried by the idea that individual domestic regulators are going to try to give special preference to their home institutions for doing activities at home. I think part of what we think will help in the process of intermediation of capital around the world is taking the expertise of the Londons and New Yorks of the world and allowing that to propagate around the world. 
So I, I, I'm worried about that as well. I, I think that that is something that is controllable at a more technical level. The technocrats are going to be more involved in those decisions um, in, in the long run. So I, I guess I'm slightly more optimistic that that will be taken care of just because the economy will start growing. <coughs> it'll fall by the wayside. But it, it's certainly a concern. Uh, yeah, behind that. Hi, Alex Barrett from Sandy Charlie. Actually, I was going to talk about the third one, I'll talk about the fourth element of protectionism, <laughs> uh, which may be of interest to the people in the room here, which is on the human capital. And one of the, uh, uh, one of the most striking things that we're seeing, I'm certainly seeing, is the, uh, the rise in, in uh, restrictions on, on entry visas, um, and really the, uh, the, uh, the exodus of talent from the US. Um, and I was wondering whether you looked at that and whether it was going to affect multinationals, which generally tend to rely more on, on the mobility of, uh, of their talent around the world compared with, with uh, domestic institutions. <coughs> if that was an element that you looked at and whether you saw that, no, how I, worrying you saw that uh, to be? I mean, it's, this is starting, you know, the, my life's plan. I mean, I, the, you know, our business school, uh, on the day that uh, the interpretation about the rules in the stimulus bill was announced, I had seven students come to me uh, who had all lost their jobs, uh, had their offers rescinded before there had been a ruling on whether or not they were uh, likely to be subject to the, <coughs> to the higher American provisions in the stimulus bill for financial uh, companies. It, this is of crucial importance both to multinationals uh, and, and also to what had been a very thriving uh, export sector for the US. Uh, the US had a huge uh, export surplus in, in higher education. Um, I think what we've seen already is that firms are willing to make uh, hires of individuals from countries where it's harder to get visas, and they're just putting them in new locations. Uh, but that, that's got to affect human capital development. So you think it's going to affect multinationals more than Yeah, absolutely. And therefore, maybe the, some of the results we've been seeing will be distorted a little bit in this crisis because of that. Yeah, yeah I don't think that we'll see the effects of that for, you know, for several years down the line. I think that maybe is a dead I mean, the, the people we're talking about who are having the most trouble are at more junior levels who are going to be accumulating international skills. So I, I, I don't think it's a year or two of, of data, but I, a decade from now, I think we will we will certainly be suffering because of the fact that we, we inhibited labor mobility of the most skilled workers. That's, and, and that's, um, the, there's almost no way to try to make that argument, even to, to people who might, in the U.S. Congress, who might actually have a, a chance of agreeing with you, they, they don't even want that conversation to be started. It's so politically tainted in the U.S. So if th that's not going to turn around that at any time soon. Perhaps. You have, oh, okay, sorry. Um, Danny, the, I think it would be terrible if the U.S. closed in on itself and went to a world of protectionism. But I wonder if, you know, even bullish though you are, you're, you're being a little bit more pessimistic than, than is justified. Even, you know, even, in the, even though India and China now, per capita GDP, are only about one thirtieth of the average in the U.S., in the early 2000s, the two of them already contributed at market exchange rates, 70% of what the U.S. did to world economic growth. Um, the fact is now that Korea and Japan do a lot more trade with each other and with China than they do with the United States. Now, you know, none of these is, is definitive one way or the other, but it suggests that uh, perhaps the time when we looked at the U.S. as the engine of world growth, you know, if it does go away because the U.S. consumer is now not as optimistic as it used to be, perhaps the world could actually get along given 
You know, but the, that I would I'd be delighted if that were the case. I, the, I've noticed that the Economist hasn't run a cover story called decoupling in the last uh, year and a half, um, and I and I have to think that it was a little premature to even run with a question mark after before. And I, I, when you look at, so I, I mean, I'm to blame. I put up the aggregate world GDP number, uh, but the, the extent to which the the GDP number involves uh, trade of goods, then that I think the U.S. Is, has, up until now, still been a crucial factor in, in promoting this kind of trade. And one of the things we really don't have a good sense of, because we don't know how to measure or follow this up, is how, how much of the Japan-China trade uh, has really just supplanted Japan-U.S. trade. And, 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 and we don't know how, how big that is, and we, we can't really use the current crisis to figure it out, because everyone's falling at the same time. I think clustering. Is a much better way to think about it than decoupling. And clustering is, is well consistent with many, many theories of international trade that we have. Yeah. No, and, and the US clearly has a very robust cluster in North America, so that, you know, most of its trade is sold in North America. Yeah. Yeah, just one question on the um, you spoke about US labor productivity. I mean, you showed a chart showing it running about 4% dipping, and then you said that looking forward, you don't expect it to go back to the previous rates. Can you just kind of explain why you think that? That's it? Well, I, I think that um, I, I view the, the U.S. labor productivity story, the decade of high growth, as being uh, a story where it takes a decade to take what is, was really a revolutionary combination of technologies uh, and to propagate them throughout an economy like the United States. So we see a decade of very rapid productivity growth as sector after sector and firm after firm learns how to rearrange its activities using the communication and computer technologies that were developed well before. But after a decade of rapid growth, the level of productivity and output is much higher. But the growth rate going forward is now going to be based on, on the old style of creating ideas and trying to get more produ productivity out of your existing inputs. So I view that as much more likely what the story of the world is, the story of the US is going forward, than there was a break in the world in 1996, and before 1996, we could expect two, two and a half percent growth per year, and since then, going forward, it's three, three and a half percent per year. Unfortunately, I just don't think that that's what we're likely to see for the next decade. Uh, and, and that's, when you look at the productivity numbers, the problem is they come out slowly. It'll take a while to figure out whether I'm unfortunately correct or uh, whether I'm fortunately wrong. <laughs> I think we probably ought to um, uh, wind up at, at this point. Um, I must say, Danny thought that you were being too pessimistic. I must say, when I listened to what you said about US productivity, what you said about overseas investment, what you said about the restrictions on human capital, I couldn't quite see why you were optimistic. So uh, <laughs> and that shows that we come from two opposite sides. But um, just to console you a little bit on the US, we have got exactly the same sort of problems emerging on mobility of labor here with a new exciting points-based visa system which is proving quite complex to operate even recruiting academics. In fact, you were lucky to get in. I think what pushed you over the bar was that Stanford PhD. That's what, I, that's what I like to think anyway. But thank you very much for coming. That was a fascinating presentation, uh, exactly in the spirit uh, of the 
lectures which Standard Chartered wanted us uh, to promote. Um, and I hope Pat found it interesting uh, in his old stamping grounds. Um, thank you. Thank you very much.